the reason we send people on missions trips is not just for the people that they go to. It's usually for the people that go. They come back changed more than the people they go to. So that's fun. So I also think I need to take speaking lessons from Katie Lee. So, because you, you were amazing. My name is Carl Farner, and I'm an elder here at Cornerstone. And today we're talking about Revelations 3, 1 through 6. And I've titled The Church That Lives. Wake up! Sometimes when I read scripture and there's a convicting passage, I think, and I bet some of you do this, well, that's really true about him. That's true about her. So about eight years ago, I was reading Isaiah 30, 15, and it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. And I thought, boy, some people are going to have a hard time with that one. Then the Lord said pretty loudly, Carl, read it again. So the second time I read it, this is what it sounded like. This is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you, Carl, would have none of it. Oh. So Jesus was talking to me. Let's read Revelations 3, 1 through 6 right now. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your words that were written uh, uh, over 2,000 years ago, but apply to us too. Applies to me. Applied to me. Father, help us to wake up and to not be asleep, just like some of the people were in Sardis. In Jesus' name, amen. So, well, the thought that this didn't apply to me didn't last very long as I kept reading uh, Revelation 3, getting ready for this sermon. And I realized, Carl, you're falling asleep too. <laughs> Many of you know that five months ago I had my knee replaced. And the great thing is about, about major surgery is it's all about you. Every, everyone is concerned for my pain. Was I sleeping? If I said at home, I need something, whoa, I got it in a second. It was great. I had excuses not to call people or meet with people. I could watch as much TV as I want. Sleep whatever I wanted. Eventually, I noticed I was watching questionable TV shows and making and justifying it. My thoughts were less and less pure. I was becoming numb to my sin. I was falling asleep spiritually. I think a lot of us get to this point. Maybe you're already there. Where we can justify our sin, and we kind of like it. I mean, sin is fun. But sin does not satisfy, and it, it makes us sleep. It puts us asleep to real life. 
So I start, as I started to read Revelation 3, I was convicted that I was drifting in the, in the spiritual sleep. And when people asked me how I was doing, I started to say, I've been focusing on myself. Please pray that I start focusing on Jesus and serving people like I was. So then God started to give me a heart to get up early and read, read my Bible. I started to have a heart for people and meet with them again. But Jesus did that. So a little history on Sardis. The expression rich as Croesus, which I'm sure you use, comes from an ancient king of Sardis. Who, and Sardis was in Asia Minor. It was the capital of Lydia. Sardis had one time was considered a, a, to be an impregnable fortress. It was on a hill and it was surrounded by cliffs and there was only one way to get into it. Yet Sardis had been attacked twice because of its arrogance. They thought they were impregnable. Croesus, the last Lydian king, paid for the construction of the Temple of Artemis. Some of you might have read that, read about the Temple of Artemis, but it was, it was, a, it was one of the most famous temples in the ancient world. It was over 350 feet long and 180 feet wide. It was longer than a football field and wider than a football field. And inside there was, where was uh, amazing art, works of art. Sardis was devoted to the worship of the mother goddess Sybil. And no temple worshiper was allowed to come unless they had clean white robes. Note the following account of the actual moral conditions of the idolatry. Andrew Tate writes, Her worship was, the most, was of the most debasing character, and orgies like those of Dionysus were practiced at the festivals held in her honor. Sins of the foulest and darkness and purity were committed on those occasions. And so that was the setting what the church of, of Sardis was living in. That's a rough place to live. It was just, it, sexual sin was rampant, and that was expected. Sardis was also wealthy because there's a river ran right by it, so she was wealthy because of the trade. And among its features was a necropolis. Known, it was known as the City of a Thousand Hills because it had burial grounds that you could see above it, so it looked like it had a thousand hills. And Jesus picks up on this, this history saying, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Just as Sardis' famous cemetery had a thousand hills, a church can have a thousand members yet be dead as, a, as the inhabitants of a cemetery. So in this church, we find no persecution as in Smyrna, no false teaching as in Pergamum. Eventually, evidently, Satan didn't consider Sardis worthy of spiritual assault. Today, we'd call Sardis a nominal church. The members possessed faith, but their heart was turned from Jesus. Jesus goes on to say, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Almost the entire church had capitulated to the surrounding world of paganism and Judaism. So Christ gave them five imperatives. Re Revelations 3, 2, 3 says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour I come against you. In the physical realm, when we're asleep, we're unconcerned, apathetic, and indifferent. Unfortunately, that can be tr true in the spiritual realm, too. Many Christians have dozed off like I had been dozing, 
and we don't even know it. We are in need of an abrupt wake-up call. Christ's first command to the slumbering believers at Sardis is to wake up. There is a remnant of true believers at Sardis who, who were spiritually alive because Jesus would have never said to wake up if they were dead. It also suggests that revival begins with a few individuals who wake up to the condition of those around them and start to be concerned for them. Sardis twice fell by the sword because the watchmen were asleep. Its revival would correspondingly begin with Christians who woke up and began to stimulate new life. King Croesus had fought a losing battle against Cyrus the Great. After the battle, the king retreated to his supposedly impregnable fortress. A Persian soldier named Hierogenes was watching as a Sardinian soldier knocked his helmet over the wall and then crept down the precipice to find it. So that night, the Persian army went back up the, that way he found his helmet and stormed the city. 200 years later, Alexander the Great did the same thing to Sardis. Let me ask you, how many things were unacceptable to the church based on God's word 20 years ago that are acceptable today? It's worth mentioning that the Greek word translated wake up can also be translated keep being watchful. Jesus wants the church to be vigilant. Whenever we do not watch our spiritual condition, we begin to slide. Have you taken a good look at your spiritual condition recently? I would encourage you to memorize Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me into the everlasting way. This passage is worth going over every morning. It sets us, it, make, it wakes us up and, and sets us uh, it, it, that we should be concerned about where we are. Mark this well, that's very, there's very little difference between a sinful condition or an indifferent condition. Which is worse, someone who is bullying or someone who is watching the bullying and doesn't intervene? Which is worse? The next thing Jesus says is strengthen. Strengthen, the awakened Christians are to strengthen what remains and is about to die. The word strengthen means to establish or, or stabilize something. Our primary means of grace is the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable by the living and abiding word of God. The description of Sardis is also... Uh, comparable to Second Timothy. Paul advised Timothy not to seek a worldly solution, but to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, the sacred writings. God's outbreathed word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. After my knee was replaced, I had to do a lot of exercises to strengthen it and stabilize it. As we, keep, as we read the word, we are hearing truth. It keeps us from falling asleep. The word wakes us up and stables us and stabilizes and strengthens us. When we're asleep, we don't even care. Remember. Remember what you have heard, received and heard, the third thing. Remember the gospel truth of how we came to know Christ. Remember Jesus himself and the grace of his salvation, the power of new life that he gives us. Some of the most significant words of this 
letter are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus is him who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars are the seven churches that it's written to. The point is that only Jesus is able to grant reviving power to the Holy Spirit. Discouraged Christians are to believe God and go forth ministering in his word. The same Jesus who raised Lazarus, his friend, from the grave is able to revive sleeping or dead churches. A personal example for me is, is I like to go to St. Mary's City and sit on the hill there at the church. There's a bench that you can look out over the hill and watch, watch the boats and the, and the water. But I bring my Bible and a notebook and uh, some snacks and, and a water, and I talk to God. And almost every time I'm there, Jesus says, remember Isaiah 54, 1 to 3. And I got that promise in 1974 in college. But basically, Jesus says, he asked me if my tent is still up and people can come under, under the tent and get spiritually refreshed. So that's, that was Jesus' command to me. It should be most of our commands. But, but, and sometimes I, I get weary and tired and pull my tent down. I don't want people under the tent. But Jesus wants me to keep my tent up so people can come up under it and be refreshed. The fourth thing he says, retain or keep it in verse 3. Similarly, 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know and have come to know him if we keep his commands. God has called us to apply the word of truth. He is not after information overload. He's after transformation overload. Let me say that again. He's not after information overload, which is a lot of times we think we want to know stuff. But he's really after transformation overload. As we apply Jesus' grace to our lives, we then give it to others. We are a different kind of spouse, friend, employee. Others see the grace in our lives. Jesus wants our unswerving loyalty to him. He wants us to see his love and joyfully follow him. The last thing Jesus says is repent. And it sets the first, it sets the previous four imperatives in motion. The New Testament uses the repent or metaneo, usually means a change of thinking for the better. Eight years ago, God really got my attention about how arrogant I was. But as I saw the depths of my arrogance, I also saw the depths of, of Jesus' love for me. I realized, golly, I'm this arrogant and Jesus loves me. I was drawn to Jesus. I didn't know how to change. I needed to be saved from myself. It was Jesus who gave me the desire to, to repent and change. Repentance replies that, implies a change of life because of some change of thought and attitude. While the emphasis in English is contrition, the Greek word carries it, a total change in thinking and behavior. Whether the focus is on attitude or behavior depends on the context. Jesus wants the Christians at Sardis to completely change their thinking and orientation about their sin. And there's a dire warning, dire warning, in this, uh, in verse 3. It says, Christ will visit disobedient Christians and give them discipline. People who are focusing on something other than focus on Jesus. You know, when we do that, our friends are not encouraged to walk with Jesus. People wander away and, and we don't even know. And a number, a number of times, Jesus has, has uh, intervened in my life and rebuked me. In my 20s, a girlfriend told me I was, a I was proud, but I didn't listen. Jesus tried to get my attention when I didn't get a PhD, 
And when I was laid off at 44, I didn't listen then either. It wasn't until 2010, when I was 58, that I finally realized how arrogant I was and how much I needed Jesus to save me from that arrogance. So obedience and repentance is not optional. optional. Isaiah 30, 15 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. If you don't think we, you, we've fallen asleep, listen to the word, words of Paul Harvey, a famous radio commentator from 1965, over 50 years ago. I were the devil. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington, and then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. So remember, wake up to God's incredible love for you. Strengthen 
the word in your life. Remember what you received and heard? Retain his commands. It's not information overload. It's transformation overload. Repent. And repentance and rest is your salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Father, we confess we, we probably, probably uh, moved a, a, a far away from 1965 to now. And what's okay. And Father, I know some of us have been asleep, and uh, I think I was asleep. So Father, wake us up to the spiritual reality that, that we're living in, and help us to love you and, and see your love for us, and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we think about that message and what our team has done in Atlantic City, let's remind ourselves that God is the Lord of all creation, Lord of every man, he, and our, his cry of love rings out across the lands. Let's sing and cry out about his love. Please join us as we...